Welcome to Extra Virgin, a podcast for adventurers and armchair travellers. I'm your host, Natasha Mirosh, an insatiably curious food and travel writer who's either planning her next trip or still talking about her last. Join me now as I meet the passionate explorers and deep dive the destinations that will fire your wanderlust. Hi there, thanks for joining me for another episode of Extra Virgin Travel. For many of us, Antarctica is the ultimate wish list destination. It's about as remote as you can get, and honestly, most of us are unlikely to make it there in our lifetimes. Today, I'm going to talk to someone who's been there not once, but twice. My guest, Catherine Marshall, is an award-winning freelance journalist and travel writer based in Sydney, Australia, who writes for publications such as the Sydney Morning Herald, the Australian Financial Review, and Luxury and Travel in the Weekend Australian, as well as many others. I'm going to chat all things Antarctic with Catherine today, from the very basics such as how you actually get there, to the wildlife you can expect to see, but also we're going to talk a little bit about the future for the continent with the rapid increase recently in visitor numbers. We'll also hear about her icy plunge in Antarctic waters and more. Catherine, I've been trying to get you on the show for some time, but you are a very busy lady, so I'm really happy we could finally make it work. Welcome. Thank you so much, Natasha. Yes, I think you probably could have circumnavigated and Antarctica <laughs> and trekked across it there and back in the time it's <laughs> taken us to actually schedule this interview. Oh, but we've got here. Catherine, you went to Antarctica last year, I believe, although it's not your first visit. How did that visit come about? It was actually at the end of 2022. I know that last year, despite our grasp in the flash, that it does feel like it It was last year. But one of the the cruise liners, Silver Sea, had a new ship that they were launching, a state-of-the-art ship. And it was going to be christened in the Le Maire Channel, which is one of the channels, the fjords, islands in, in the Antarctic Peninsula. And um, I went along to cover that story. And where do you leave from? Most expeditions leave from South America. So you would be flying from Australia to Santiago and then either from Santiago down to Ushuaia or uh, Punta Arenas. Some cruisers um, will get get their passengers to fly to Buenos Aires and then to fly down to one of those two cities. But Silver Sea, actually, when I went along on this latest trip, they were departing from the world's most southern town, which is called Porto Williams. Mm -hmm. So they've actually established a cruise hub there. It's in its infancy, but that's a third option. So you're very much led by the cruise liner's Mm -hmm. schedule and their departure hubs. Okay. How long does it actually take you to get to Antarctica from that point? On my first expedition, which was in 2016, it took two days to cross the Drake Passage. So we departed from Ushuaia. And Ushuaia is in Argentina. That's right. But if you look at the, you would know from the map that this is the kind of shattered southern tip of South America. Mm. And so really it, it's a series of little cloistered islands that belong in some parts to Argentina and in some parts to Chile. Mm. And so you can cross a, a channel and be in another country. Ushuaia is part of Argentina and Punta Arenas is part of um, Chile. And so that, that would also determine what visa you require 
if you're traveling on an Australian passport. Mm. So you leave one of those southern points and you cross the Drake Passage. I've heard a lot about uh, how rough this crossing is. And as someone who suffers from seasickness, I'm not sure how I'd go. I am with you on that. I suffer terribly from seasickness. Mm. And no prescribed medication seems to deal with it, (laughs) prescribed or otherwise. And so I was quite terrified on that first crossing and I was very sick. I was pretty much on my back for two, for the two days that it mm. took to cross the Drake Passage. You have in Antarctic expedition parlance, you have the Drake Shake or the Drake Lake. <laughs> and so the shake is obviously six meter swells or oh. above and absolute bedlam. And the Drake Lake, by comparison, obviously self-explanatory, you'd have a very smooth crossing. But for people like us, even a smooth crossing is not without its nausea-inducing moment. <laughs> and so for the first crossing was somewhere between Drake Lake and Drake Shake. Mm. We were told that it was quite a peaceful, placid crossing. But as I say, I was pretty incapacitated for it, which was just as well because I didn't eat very much. I didn't eat anything for two days. And the food on these cruise ships is most delicious and plentiful. So you do quite a bit of eating. So it wasn't a, a, a bad thing that I was forced to fast in those <laughs> couple of days. But yes, a lot of people did suffer. You have people who, who don't suffer at all from seasickness. And so they can actually enjoy the, the solitude and the experience of crossing this immense mm. ocean. I envy those people yes, so much. I, I've seen them walking around I, just normally. Yes. Yes, and looking at you as skewers, if you say, I just don't understand, what's your problem? (laughs) Um, But the second time on this most recent voyage, it took a day and a half. We were leaving from a point that was slightly to the south of, of Ushuaia, but not significantly. But the reason it, the trip was shorter was because the, this particular ship that, as I said, was being christened is a new a new build. Actually, it was an, a ship that had belonged to a different company that went into liquidation during the pandemic and it had been retrofitted, but it was a state of the art ship anyway. And I'm not engineering minded in any way, but I can tell you that it has stabilizers that assist for people like us who are prone to seasickness. It, it's less rocky, there's less movement on the ship itself. And also, it has thrusters that propel it faster than other ships would. And I must say, half a day doesn't sound like a lot, but it is a quarter of the original journey. And so it did make quite a difference. And I noticed a difference in the seasickness. Hmm. Um, I was much better on the second crossing. So as we already mentioned, this wasn't your first trip. Do you remember what it was like seeing Antarctica for the first time? Yes, it's quite extraordinary because... You are sailing for two days is a long time, even two and a half, one and a half days of sailing in absolute emptiness. You're accompanied by nothing but the birds, so the albatrosses and the petrels and the shearwaters, which if you can lift your head off your (laughs) pillow for a moment and brave the upswell of nausea, are quite a fascinating sight because there's not a speck of land Mm. in view you know that you won't be reaching land for some time. And yet here these birds are powerfully swooping and diving beside the ship 
almost accompanying the ship and guiding it towards its destination. It's quite extraordinary. I should just say that most of the cruise ships are headed towards the Antarctic Peninsula, which is this little tail of land, almost appendix-shaped, that protrudes from the continent of Antarctica. And that's where activities are centered in this region. It's a very tiny part of this immense continent. And the first landfall is actually the South Shetland Islands. Mm. So that's the landmass that you will sight as you're arriving at the peninsula. And it's quite a momentous occasion because, of course, it, the cruise feels like a labor of love and mm. uh, it feels like an expedition, although, I mean, it can hardly be compared to uh, the voyages <laughs> taken by explorers and sealers and whalers and that type of thing. But, yes, the, the captain will announce that we, that land has been sighted and, of course, everybody rushes onto the deck and stands in absolute awe of the fact that you have now sighted Antarctica. Mm. It's quite a profound moment, and I remember it very clearly from both both trips. Is the build-up of ice a gradual thing, or do you just, once you get to the continent of Antarctica, there is the ice, there are the icebergs, there are the ice-covered land? Yeah, it is gradual, because obviously the further south you move, the colder it gets, the icier it gets. And I think one of the extraordinary things for me was that even though we all know Antarctica is a continent, I think it had always existed in my imagination as an ice cap, Mm. uh, as the North Pole is, as the Arctic, much of the Arctic is. You look at it on the map and it's a a white splotch. There are no contours or there's no greenery, Mm. (laughs) beaches exactly valleys and mountains but actually when you arrive I think that was one of the first things that struck me was the fact that yes this is in fact a continent in much the way Australia is a continent it possesses all the folds and valleys and peaks and shapes that you would find in a a physical landmass and so the islands the South Shetland Islands are the first hint of this because they appear and they are not necessarily ice-covered. Of course, cruises to Antarctica, pleasure cruises or leisure cruises, occur during the summer months, so from November to March. And on my first journey there, I was traveling very early in the season. In fact, it was that particular ship, it was a Lindblad expedition, and it was their first expedition of the season. Things are pretty still starting to thaw. Summer is just arriving, uh, so there was quite a bit of ice. But you, but you find more ice the the, the further south you mm. journey. So um, I think it's also surprising then to take the zodiac out to to the island. You stop and go and do an exploration. I discovered lichens and beaches and exposed rock, and that's when you'll have your first animal sightings. So I think I think the South Shetland Islands has quite a few sea lions, mm. and so that's quite exciting. Did you go to the same places in 2016 and 2021? So a couple of them were the same, but that's the nature of Antarctic cruising is that you'll see different places 
There are 300 approved landing sites in, in Antarctica. Gosh. I don't know the precise numbers of how many are actually used, but it wouldn't be anywhere near that number. And there are actually only guidelines for 50 of those sites. So the, on my most recent cruise, that liner is actually working to create guidelines for other sites so that ships can disperse and redistribute their, their environmental impact. So actually, I would imagine that the ones that have guidelines are the, are the ports, the landing sites that are visited. Mm. And that's problematic in itself because, yes, on the one hand, it then eases some of the impact on the existing sites that are visited, but it creates potentially new problems in other sites. Now, you mentioned leisure cruise, but these aren't your usual cruises with swimming pools and nightclubs and all that kind of entertainment. What's the typical day on board one of these expedition ships and how are they different from your normal cruise? You say no swimming pools and nightclubs. Yes, they probably aren't nightclubs, but I think on some of the cruise liners there's entertainment and cabaret and that sort of thing. Some of the ships have hot tubs. And actually, the, the Silver Sea ship that I was on had a, a rather bizarre swimming pool in one of the dining areas. It, it wasn't quite an outdoor, semi-outdoor dining mm. areas. And because this ship had been acquired from another company, this was something that they were going to remedy. So they were actually going to fill that in, I believe. Mm. As far as do a lot of cruising, I think the only... I've never cruised on a massive cruise liner. So the only cruises I can really compare it with are those that I've done. And they've all, for the most part, been expedition-style cruises. So you would have, for a, a cruise to Antarctica, you would typically have a, access to a staff that includes specialists in marine biology mm. and environmental science and staff who have expertise in outdoor activities such as kayaking through brash ice or taking out across ice shelves, that type of thing. So it's a very different type of activity, I would imagine, from mm. your typical cruise to a tropical destination. Mm. The focus is more environmental mm-hmm. and conservation focus. Obviously, it's a wildlife experience as well. So I suppose the analogy would be it's a floating safari in mm-hmm. a sense. Mm. So you, you'd have on the recent trip I was on, we had an ornithologist. And so she would be pointing out birds and penguins and uh, discussing penguin behavior and um, looking out for nests and that type of thing. So it's a it's a very mentally stimulating experience. Mm. You have uh, generally access to people with expertise and knowledge on issues that pertain to that particular region. Mm. So they give lectures and talks and things as well, don't they, when you're out at sea? Yes. Actually, that would be the, en- the entertainment, in <laughs> inverted commas, mm. <laughs> On Antarctica cruises is lectures from biologists and the like, um, and sometimes also from people on the Silver Sea expedition. The ship, as I say, was about to be christened, mm. and the godmother of the ship was obviously on board, and her name is Felicity Aston, and she was the first person to ski manually across Antarctica into. Oh. 
2012. It took her 59 days, and oh, she is a she, she was working for the the British Antarctic Survey. So she's a, a polar explorer, but also a, a climate scientist and a meteorologist. So we had access to her. And of course, as a journalist, you then are able to chat to people like this mm-hmm. and about the deeper issues. But it was very interesting listening to her lectures. And she gave a presentation about that ski trip across Antarctica with photographs and it was absolutely riveting to be in that location and to be able to look out of the, the window mm. and see this landscape, this foreboding, hostile landscape that she had actually embedded herself in and survived in over a, a long period of time was quite exceptional. I bet she was a very popular dining companion, everybody elbowing their way to sit she next was. to her. She was. <laughs> I felt sorry for her, I remember. <laughs> Bumping into her on one of the shore excursions, and I had actually done an interview with her earlier, but there was something I'd forgotten to ask her, and she had her husband and young son with her, and I felt bad because I stopped her and said, could I just ask you one more very quick question, (laughs) and she was so generous with her time, Mm. Um, and a very interesting person who actually then went on to lead an all-woman expedition in Greenland. This was early or last year, I think last Northern Hemisphere summer. And she led an expedition to a glacier, I think it was in Iceland. And they were taking ice samples and measuring them for plastic particles and black carbon and um, pollution and that type of thing. I imagine that the passengers would all tend to have similar interests in ecology and conservation. These uh, cruises are not inexpensive. They tend to be a bucket list for people who are really interested in those particular subjects, right? Yes. And I think, once again, it's also difficult for me to compare because, Mm. of course, I'm traveling as a journalist and travel writer. On the first expedition with Lynn Blad, I was with regular passengers, paying passengers. Mm. And so there was a a diverse and fascinating cross-section of people we even had a man on our journey who was who had a, a visibility mm. impairment, and I ended up doing a story on him because I was interested to to find that he's legally blind. What mm. his experience of Antarctica was, wow. and he had very interesting insights into that. On the second trip, I was part of a, a trade and media delegation, mm. so we were very work focused, and yeah. we were not journeying with paying passengers with mm. tourists. As you said, these trips are really frighteningly expensive. Mm. And so either they are attracting people who have saved long and hard to get there and who are absolutely passionate about the environment and about polar regions and who are perhaps just yearning to see this mythical continent. But then you'd also have a lot of people who have enough disposable income that they can afford to visit a place Mm. like Antarctica without second thought. Mm. So I would imagine, and I'm really guessing here, that most visitors have the environment at heart and Mm. are are passionate about conserving it. Mm. But I don't think that's necessarily universal, Mm. given the, the wealth that is required to actually reach Antarctica. Let's talk about the Antarctica <laughs> itinerary once you get there. Let's focus on your um, most recent trip. Tell us about the trip. 
We, as I say, left from Porto Williams, arrived first at the South Shetland Islands. There's no guarantee that you will be able to go ashore onto the islands because mm. everything in Antarctica is firstly weather dependent. So the captain and the cruise director will have a general idea of where they're going, but this can change at, at a moment's notice and often does. And then the second thing is that cruise ships can't dock at landing sites simultaneously. So you will only ever be the only ship on a, at a particular site. Yeah. So this is obviously worked out furiously behind the scenes between the, the different cruise liners that are in Antarctica at any given time. And so really, it's a kind of meandering exploration around the peninsula, around the, the islands that lie off the peninsula, into different harbors. Every day you will have a landing site, weather permitting, mm. at least one. Usually there's one in the morning, one in the afternoon. So you will dock at a particular site. You'll have a briefing beforehand about where you're going, what the requirements are, what you're likely to see there. You then t are loaded into Zodiacs. These ships have what they call mudrooms on the lower deck. And so you have to, of course, rug up in all your very warm gear. You put Wellington boots on, gum boots. Mm. And you have to walk through a pan of disinfectant mm. before leaving the ship and then before reboarding the ship. You go through all this rigmarole. It's very confusing on the first day. <laughs> and of course, with all these layers and you're making sure that you've got your, your gloves and your neck shield and your sunglasses, which are, are absolutely essential in that flared landscape. Mm. And so you feel quite exhausted by the time you <laughs> load into the Zodiac and off you go. And everything works seamlessly. You're taken to the landing site which is different on every occasion. So you might be landing on a beach one day, a pebbly beach. So you then have to very carefully find your way out. And of course, there's help along the way. I remember once on the first trip, we docked at a, a landing site and the ship's team had actually gone ahead and hacked a little staircase out of the, the ledge of ice that was overhanging the water because there was no other way of actually getting onto it, it was quite a, a steep ledge mm. um, and so we had to climb up this little icy staircase mm. you'll also have activities like kayaking mm. and I did that I don't think on the second journey but because that's once again is also weather dependent you need a, a good day mm. in which to kayak and the experience during that first expedition of mine is something that I still often think about because it was dissonant to be floating along this absolutely sea water. It was a still windless day. The sun was shining. It was blazing down. I actually got a little bit sunburned mm. despite the fact that I applied sunscreen. Yet here was this ice world all around us. Here were penguins waddling along the ice shelf. There were bits of, of ice, clear, so clear that you almost missed them floating in mm. the water beside you. It might have been a tropical destination, <laughs> if not for that chill on the skin. And for that, it's almost like an ice desert mm. that 
that exists around you in Sounds surreal. Antarctica. I always yeah. look at those pictures of people kayaking in the Antarctic and my first thought is what happens if you fall in? Because even if you survive that water temperature with all those clothes on, surely you're so heavy that you're just you're gonna struggle to actually get out of the water. Do they give you safety briefings on what happens if that should happen? Yes. So there's a, a very comprehensive safety briefing. They also recommend that only people who are confident and preferably who have kayaked before take part in that activity. I'm by no means an outdoor enthusiast <laughs> or athlete, <laughs> but I had kayaked and I'm not particularly good at kayaking. I splash water in my face. I end up sopping wet, but, but I have kayaked a little. Mm. And so I felt confident in doing it once I'd taken part in the briefing. And so you are equipped with this life jacket, which is the most important thing. And there's an explanation about what to do should you fall in. Mm. There are expedition leaders who will be kayaking with the group. And if anything like that were to happen, they would be there to assist you in climbing back into your kayak and I'm really not quite sure how that happened. <laughs> I would imagine you have to swim back to the boat, but of course you would probably have died of cold. <laughs> my my one of my big fears was actually leopard seals because mm. if you fall in, I think it's hard. people have been attacked by them before. Mm. I don't think it's likely. Mm. It would probably race away in fear. So it is all a bit terrifying. But that's why I suppose they make sure you're kayaking in still weather. And so really there was not a ripple on that bay the mm. day that, that we kayaked. I don't have a story to tell about <laughs> falling out of the kayak. <laughs> Although you didn't go in the water when you were kayaking, you have been in the Antarctic water, but on purpose. Tell us about that. Yes. So I did what's called the polar plunge which is a rite of passage <laughs> for expeditioners or cruisers. And this is when you either jump into the water off the boat or sometimes people will wade in on the shore. So it's essentially a swim in Arctic waters in the sea. And I had decided that I was going to do it, but I really didn't think I would go through with it <laughs> until the very last moment. And um, this was on my first journey there. Mm -hmm. We all lined up. It was a beautiful day. I think we were in a place called Neko Harbour. So it was. it's quite a shielded bay. Most people were not doing the polar plunge, of course, but there were those madcaps around like myself <laughs> who had all stripped off to our swimming costumes and were lining up. And, of course, you're standing there feeling very exposed to both the elements and the the prospect of, of what's to come and wondering why on earth you <laughs> wanted to do this. <laughs> but it's a very festive atmosphere. Everybody's lined up on, on the upper decks overlooking you. We I have seen with some ships will actually attach a belt to the person mm -hmm. that is then attached by a rope to the ship, mm -hmm. uh, which makes a lot of sense. We didn't have that. Uh, we had a, a zodiac that was just off the, the back of the ship. So we jumped between the zodiac and the ship. Mm. And they took photographs of everyone from that zodiac <laughs> as you were jumping. And yes, in I went. It, it's something that almost 
it defies description mm. because nothing can prepare you for the sensation mm. that a polar plunge induces. Mm. And paradoxically, it actually feels initially like jumping into a fire. Mm. Not that I've ever done that either, <laughs> but uh, the water is so cold that it burns your skin. And of course, then you also have that absolute shock, the shock of immersing yourself in this water that is really incompatible with human existence, <laughs> with survival. Mm. And so you can understand how people would not last very long if they'd landed in the water and didn't have help. But of course, this is all done under managed conditions. My head popped up and I just turned immediately, swam back. It was just a few strokes to the back of the boat climbed as fast as I could <laughs> up the, the little ladder onto the, the back deck. And there was a staff member waiting with a, a beautiful, warm, fluffy towel. Mm. And another staff member put a cup of warm, rum-spiked tea into my hand. <laughs> I drank that and immediately the warmth started coming back. But interestingly enough, my extremities, so the tips of my fingers and toes, felt as if someone had taken a piece of sandpaper to them and rubbed on them. It felt as though the nerve endings were exposed. Oh, God, that sounds horrible. Which, which is, I think, that experience was interesting because I have heard other people say, why would you want to do that? It's nonsense. And it is a, a personal decision. For me, I felt that immersing myself in that way, I was actually able to really fully comprehend the, the absolute power of that region and the ferocity of it and the purity of it as well. Uh, of course, you don't need to do that in order to understand what that continent represents, but it gave me an interesting perspective, a visceral understanding of Antarctica's climate and inhospitability. Wow, that's going the extra mile for the story. It's interesting because I've, I have heard since then that it can actually be quite dangerous, which I suppose is why some companies attach belts to their jumpers so that if they do pass out or something or have a heart attack, they're able to <laughs> extricate them. Easily. You're braver than me. I don't know that I'd do it. <laughs> But yes, it's also cold water plunging is supposed to be really good for the senses, for mental health and that type of thing. Mm, yeah. you, you certainly feel alive for I, many hours thereafter. I bet. Oh, congratulations on doing it. Now, one of the biggest draw cards for people going to Antarctica is the wildlife, some of which is endemic to the region. Tell us about the kind of things that you have seen on your trips. The creature that will appear in people's mind's eye when thinking of Antarctica, of course, is penguins. Mm. And penguins do exist in other parts of the world, but they really are concentrated in Antarctica. That is an absolute delightful aspect of the trip because penguins are just very cute. Yes, They, they do waddle. They have big personalities contained inside those little bodies. <laughs> they look like little tuxedoed birds that have somehow learned to, to walk long distances. You often see them in groups of three toddling along together or, or interesting little configurations. They don't have much fear of humans, so they're quite friendly, although you, you are required to keep a 
a respectful distance from the wildlife. And there are three types of penguins, actually four, four types of penguins, but the main ones that you're going to see are the Adeli, the chin strap, which is named chin strap because it has a, what looks like a black strap under its chin. And then the third one is the Gen 2 penguin. And interestingly enough, on a couple, on, I think on both of the trips, on a couple of occasions, we saw the wrong penguin in a particular colony. So you might have a colony of gentoos and a, a chin strap has somehow ended up with them and but seems to be quite happy about it. <laughs> mm. There are those interesting things to watch out for. And of course, that's when having a naturalist is incredibly beneficial, but they are able to explain the breeding habits and that type of thing. And mm. um, the other penguin um, is the emperor mm. penguin, which I'm sure people who saw that that nature documentary from years ago oh, can't yeah. recall the name at the moment. But you're not likely to see them on an Antarctic coast mm. because they don't tend to inhabit the Antarctic Peninsula. Mm. So they they are found further away. Mm. So, but sometimes you will see them. On my first trip, we actually saw one. Mm. One, one single <laughs> penguin. Apparently, they leave their nesting site and they can actually circumnavigate the continent. They really travel far and wide. And this one had somehow ended up here and was just standing. Somebody had spotted it. And so we went a little, a little bit close. And there was a, a crab eater seal. It was standing on a ledge on an ice ledge and there was a, a seal beneath it. And we were, of course, worried that mm. it was a leopard seal and that it was going to eat this penguin, but that didn't happen. It was a crab eater that also had a look around and then off it disappeared. So that was a, a very special sighting. And our guide said, but you're not likely to see another one. It's very unusual. And indeed we didn't. And on this second trip, I didn't either. Yeah, you have um, different types of seals. You've got the sea lions, which are really bulky, droll, obstreperous <laughs> sort of creatures who are, are quite smelly and like complain a lot. And so they are also fascinating to watch. They move very fast despite their bulk. So when you're doing a, an onshore excursion, you might see them flopping along on their bellies and it's quite terrifying really to see the speed at which they move mm. but something that's really fascinating in Antarctica is the bird life mm. because you have these as I've mentioned before albatrosses which for me have always loomed in my imagination and from the rhyme of the ancient mariner yes. and so they're just these really mythological kind of creatures that seem to exist in their own realm and it's very exciting to see them. And then you have the bad boys, which are, they're called skewers. Mm. And I actually saw a skewer stealing, I think it was a Gen 2 penguin's oh. egg. So they had just started laying. It was early in the season and they build their nests. They wait for the ice to melt away before building their nests. And it was so sad. Um write quite a bit about African safaris. And so I'm used to watching nature uh, play out and observing rather than interfering. But it's mm. still quite a, a heartbreaking thing to watch when you have seen and comprehended the, the the effort that it takes for these birds to actually survive, not only survive, but to then generate the next 
generation. It's interesting <laughs> that you say that about birds because I I have just done a cruise to the south of New Zealand and actually there is a peninsula where there is the only land-based albatross colony in the world and I have no interest in birds but once you're with an expert who points out how amazing these birds and, and all birds are, you, you suddenly find yourself understanding those people who walk around with binoculars spotting birds, what their passion is, because they are quite fascinating. Sometimes we have this tendency, I think, to focus on the big animals, the seals or the penguins. the charismatic species. Yes. So it's wonderful to have those people there to explain those kind of things. That albatross colony sounds incredible. I should also say that on the first expedition I did, we actually had a, a marine biologist on board who would go on a dive every day. There were mm-hmm. a couple of people who would dive and they'd actually take footage. And of course they had wetsuits on, but mm. that's still an incredible feat. Yes. And then in the evenings they would play this footage that they'd gathered from the mm. depths. And so that was also quite a spectacular window onto a world that very we know very little about mm. and we're unlikely to ever encounter ourselves except through other people's stories and I was surprised at the color that existed Mm. and the plenitude of little um, microscopic creatures or small creatures and there they are just doing their thing industriously doing what nature Mm. intends for them. Mm. Do you ever see any whales? Yes actually on on the second trip we saw uh, humpback whales Mm. And se- on several occasions, and actually, it was just the most thrilling experience because I haven't seen many whales in my life, and one of them was actually really pretty close to the ship, and it was licking its tail out of the water and doing a bit of a ballet um, in the bay, and it provided a- us with plenty of entertainment and a lot of opportunity to actually see it. It wasn't a fleeting experience and Antarctica was once a whaling there were whaling stations all around it and the seals there were almost decimated by Mm. sealers so it it is has a blood-soaked history and of course that was all stopped and and so that wildlife has or that marine life has regenerated it was really quite a privilege to see it it's incredible to think of the hardships people must have endured living there the seal hunters and the whale hunters in those days yes and i think that's interesting as well because you do see and do excursions to a few of the refuge huts that still exist and which are actually mm. historic yeah. edifices mm. And that gives you some clue. The lives that these people had, the the privations that they experienced. Mm. And of course, when you're on a cruise ship, you're going off and trekking across the ice and having a look at the place. And then you're going back to a, mm-hmm. a lovely meal, to a warm cabin, to a hot shower. Mm. So it can be difficult to put yourself in those people's shoes. Mm. But it does expose you to to some of that history. Mm. And, of course, there are also cairns and memorial stones in places where people have died Mm. while trekking from here to there or while trying to find their way out of a snowstorm or that type of thing. That's very sobering. I read one of your stories about Antarctica, which was absolutely fascinating, about a post office. Can you tell us about that? 
Yes, that's one of the places that actually has some museum artifacts. It's called Port Lockroy and it's managed by Britain. So it's actually part of the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust. They send four postmistresses, I suppose there's one who's the leader every summer. And on my first trip, actually, we arrived there as these postmistresses arrived. Mm. They basically stay there for about four months and they run this post office. They'd arrived, but there was sea ice and so they couldn't actually get onto shore. And so they spent a bit of time on the ship. So we were able to chat to them and then there was their opportunity. And so the, our expedition leader from this cruise ship was assisting them to reach the post office, the world's most southerly post office. And it was fascinating because we were able to watch them as they cut a path through this brash ice in the Zodiac and then went ashore. And they then had quite a long trek, part of it across sea ice, which would then later melt because summer was approaching. Mm. Summer was there, but it was gradually warming up. And they then had to dig themselves into the post office because, of course, they were coming at the end of winter. Um, and the place had been enca encased in snow and ice. Um, and then the next day we went on shore and everything had been set up. There's a little museum there um, with artifacts, sealskin gloves and a beanie and some a, a mural on the wall of a kind of reclining woman, erotic art. Um, and so you feel like you, you might be uh, in, a, in an Italian art museum but actually i have to say that post office shore excursions have just recently been halted because of the risk of avian flu there's a colony of penguins that lives around the post office which is essentially just a little hut by the way i think in the south georgia islands i believe and in order to keep things safe they've halted onshore oh, yeah. tours but i believe the postmistresses are actually coming aboard cruise ships. So as I say, you would only ever have one cruise ship visiting that site at any given time. So they would then come ashore, bring the postcards. People can then write their postcard and buy their stamp, affix their stamp, and it will then be sent from wow. that post office on probably a cruise ship that mm. then takes that mail to either Ushuaia or Punta Arenas, and it's then sent to the UK, mm. where it's then it is stamped in Antarctica. I know this because I sent my children postcards when I was there, and so it has an Antarctica stamp, but it goes via the UK. How do you pay for it? What currency? Oh, that's a good question. I think, I can't actually remember. I think it might have been US dollars, so I think they probably take any currency or perhaps pounds or dollars, the major mm. currency. Yeah, that sounds – I'm so fascinated by the, the idea of these ladies living in this remote place for four months at a time. Yeah. That's a long time. It sounds yeah. like the plot of a murder mystery or something, doesn't it? Yes. They all kill each other off. A novel. <laughs> yes, and then it's just you and the penguins. And, um, <laughs> this place apparently has no running water. It's not, as I said, it's a very cute little charming building. And then there's a, another building, very basic place where they stay. And so they do have company, which is good. Mm. But 
I suppose it, it takes a certain kind of person to actually pursue that kind of adventure. Yeah, I'd say a person who doesn't really like people all that much. Yeah. Catherine, on a more serious note, in one of your pieces, you say Antarctica doesn't come easy and you talk about that voyage across the Drake Passage that you need to do. However, I believe you can fly now to another island and thus avoiding having to do that crossing at all. There seems to be a a huge increase in the number of cruisers calling into Antarctica. Do you think that it should remain a difficult destination to get to? It's a very difficult one to reconcile, isn't it? And it feels a bit hypocritical as someone who has been there twice to actually express any opinion on it. Mm. The cruise I did most recently actually is one of the cruises that has a fly cruise option. And in fact, on the return journey, I avoided the, the Drake Passage because we flew back from Antarctica. So the airstrip is actually on King George Island, which is one of the Antarctic islands. So it's not on the mainland as such. And we had done one of the crossings by sea. And so I think some of their itineraries might include a fly cruise option Mm. or just a fly option. So you would be flying from from Punta Arenas, I think, to, with other cruise lines, Ushuaia, to King George Island, getting on your ship. And of course, from there, there's not much seasickness. So this is the big appeal for people. Plus, you're saving two days. Mm. Sail around, come back, and off you go. I am the kind of person who likes to feel the road, as it were, unspool beneath my wheels. I remember the first time I went to Uluru, we drove from Sydney Mm. and back. (laughs) And I'm not suggesting that people do that. I understand it is a really distant destination, and I'm talking about Uluru now. But it felt to me that the journey reveals itself to you by degrees. So it's not something that suddenly appears before you wholly formed. You conjure it on the way there. You meditate on it. You you reach it. Um, it's it's almost like those explorers of old who who only eventuated upon the place they were seeking out by actually putting in the hard work of traveling to get there. And so while the modern travelers are no nothing like old world adventurers, um, I think there's something that's been lost in that quest. There's no mm. quest in actually just sitting on a plane and then landing in a place. I also think seasickness notwithstanding, there, there's something magical about the, the Drake Passage because it is this, it, it's almost a continent in and of itself. It's a, a vast ocean that separates the tip of South America with Antarctica. And yes, it's empty, but as I was saying earlier, there are a lot of things to see and to contemplate in that space. And, and I think it also contextualizes Antarctica for you. So when you land there in an airplane, you lose some of that context. It is a bit alarming to see the increase in cruise ships. When you read media reports, it conjures an image of, of a, an Antarctica crowded with cruise ships the way Venice has been, for example. Mm-hmm. And that's not the case. When you're there, you very seldom, if ever, see another ship. But then it is a vast place, so you're not going to see many ships anyway. They're still there. Hmm. I don't know what the solution is because I think, as we we said earlier, 
polar travel is the preserve of the rich. And yes, it should be carefully monitored and controlled. But then what is the result of that? The result is people with the means to afford it are the people who will then travel. And I don't agree with that either. That is a very good point. What about uh, regulations about cruise ships making sure they do minimal uh, damage to the environment? Yeah, so it's quite strictly regulated. So there's an organisation called the International Association of Antarctica Tourism Operators, IATO, um, which quite strictly controls things like scheduling fuel usage. Ships are required to use a a certain type of more environmentally favourable fuel. Ships have to meet certain limitations in Mm -hmm. terms of size if they want to offer shore excursions. You can't disgorge all your passengers at once, so there's a limit on the number of people who actually step ashore at any given moment. Once you're on shore, there are quite strict parameters in which you're allowed to explore. So the staff, the forward party, will actually go ahead and stake out the path that you are allowed to follow with little flags. And then there are always people, staff members watching to ensure nobody is breaking the rules. Uh, You're not allowed to, as I mentioned about the gumboots that have to be sterilized, you're actually not allowed to put your backpack onto the ice either. So when you go ashore, if you want to take your backpack off, because sometimes you'll do a hike or a walk up to a, a hilltop, for example, and you might want your backpack. They will put out sheets of, you know, big tollens, um, or drums that you can, that have themselves been sterilized underneath. So once you actually lean back into the zodiac and return to the ship, it's actually left in a pristine condition. So there's very little evidence of uh, human footprints. There'll be a path that has been trod through the snow mm. that, of course, is still there. And one of the problems with these human excursions on shore is that often the snow is very thick and compacted and you'll step into it and create a hole, quite a deep hole, and the penguins can fall into them. You are instructed to refill the hole, but preferably to stay on the path to minimize your impact. But of course, there is an impact. It, Mm. It can't be avoided. What for you, Catherine, has been even combining these two trips, what has been the highlight for you? Something that, you know, when you think about Antarctica, that's the picture that you see or that's the memory that you have? I think it's more than a picture. It's actually a feeling. And for me, it was that sensation of having arrived on a different planet. So that initial voyage that I took where we first sighted the South Shetland Islands, it's almost like you're slipping off a world that you've inhabited up until this point and you're entering a new world, a rarefied place that is just so different to anything you've ever experienced before. It exists in so many startling configurations, so many true forms and different types of ice and as I said earlier the desert-like quality and yet it's accompanied by this absolute bone-snapping frigidity and so I think that feeling of peeling away what you've known 
and entering into something that can't ever really be fully known. None of us, even the Antarctic explorers, even those people who live down there for a year, will never know the furthest reaches of this continent. It, it is a an unknown quantity for us. And I think, I suppose, perhaps it's because humans have this innate need and desire to explore every inch of the world. We can't do that in Antarctica. And I suppose the rush of cruise ship is evidence of people's desire to conquer. But I think a journey there reinforces the fact that we, we won't ever conquer. And I think it, it helps to leave a space somehow for that, that wonder and that not knowing everything there is to know. On that note, do you think that it can't but help affect those people that have been there that can witness for themselves the effects of climate change or the the fluctuations of wildlife there because of melting ice caps, etc.? Do you think they're taking that away with them and they're going to become advocates for protecting the environment more? Or is it just something that people do tick off, leave, never think about again? I think it depends who you're speaking to. So there will be many people, especially those who are motivated to travel there by a, a deep passion for the environment and a desire to conserve the environment. And of course, they will go home even more energized than they were before. There's a lot of talk about visitors becoming ambassadors for the environment, but then the act of traveling there conflicts with this. Mm. And I have asked people and spoken to cruise executives about this who've said they would hope that this is the outcome of a trip like that. But I think if you are a very wealthy individual and there is no hardship in reaching this place, it's an easy thing to do. That's where we're going this month. And next month, perhaps we'll go to the Maldives or the Caribbean. Then... Does it leave as much of an impression on you? I would question that. I don't think that it necessarily does. Mm. But when I spoke to Felicity Aston, who, of course, she has lived and worked down there and trekked across the across part of its breadth, she was very positive about it. She believes that people who visit are the hope for that continent because they go home with stories about it and about the the decline of sea ice, for example, the, the receding glaciers, the inundation of gentoo nests with salt water. But does their voice have clout? Does it have impact? We as writers, of course, hope that we do. I remember when I wrote my first story, it was published in a newspaper and I addressed climate change. That was the focus of my story was this melt that was occurring. And I remember the online comments were universally disparaging because I had addressed climate change. Mm -hmm. And so this was probably a conservative readership, but it just gave me pause for thought because if you're bringing that message home and trying to share a place with people and share the consequences of our global inaction, and they're not listening, and they're effectively laughing. Mm. 
Antarctica, as one of the, the guides said, is the canary in the coal mine. So I don't agree that tourism in Antarctica is uh, problematic for climate change. Certainly it's environmentally problematic, but it is a barometer for what we're doing everywhere else in the world. Mm. And But I do think, I think the role of ambassadors is probably overstated. So your first visit was in 2016, and you talk about the reaction in the comments on that piece. What about subsequent pieces from this new trip? Have you noticed any difference in the reception of those pieces? I don't know that I've actually consciously examined that, but I think people are waking up to the fact that climate change is upon us and hopefully those stories stimulate conversation and provoke thought among people but of course there would also be those who just want to see it before it disappears Mm. and who don't give any further thought to that but I think yes I, I would certainly say that there is a gradual turning of opinion. It's something that I'm personally a bit conflicted about. I really want to go. I really want to th- see those things that, that you've described, but I'm also concerned about adding to the problem. I haven't yeah. been able to personally resolve it yet, but I have very much enjoyed living vicariously through you. And I do appreciate that people such as journalists and scientists are bringing back these stories from Antarctica for us who may never get there. But Thank you so much for making the time to chat. I know you have a very busy schedule and are probably jetting off somewhere for a story (laughs) soon, I'm sure. But thank you for speaking with me today. Thanks so much, Natasha. It's been lovely talking to you at long last. (laughs) Thank you, (laughs) Catherine. And listeners, I'll put some show notes up on the website, including links to Catherine's Antarctic stories. I hope you have enjoyed this episode and thank you as always for your company and happy travels. You've been listening to Extra Virgin Travel. You can get more travel inspiration on our website, www.extravirginfoodandtravel.com. You can follow Extra Virgin Travel on Instagram and Facebook or email us at extravirginfoodandtravel at gmail.com. If you like what we do, you can support us by buying a virtual coffee at our website too. If you haven't already, go to Apple, Spotify or Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts to like, download and subscribe so you never miss an episode. 